0: Nearly three out of four doctors say practicing today is more risky than it was just five years ago. Between claims of medical malpractice, audits, and insurance denials, they're facing pressures across their entire practice. Robin is here to help. Robin has reimagined the medical note to protect your practice in new ways and save you time. With Robin, you only document the clinical issues you care about and we deliver comprehensive administrative documentation that includes justified medical coding, medical liability defense, audit protection, and more. Visit robin.co slash J-O-S-P-T to learn more. That's R-O-B-I-N dot co slash J-O-S-P-T. Welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today's episode is all you need to know about the menopause and its effects on how you might tailor your exercise prescription for women who are approaching, in the middle of, or post-menopausal. Kirsty Elliott Sale is Professor of Female Endocrinology and Exercise Physiology in the Institute of Sport at Manchester Metropolitan University, where she leads work to better understand what female athletes need to stay healthy and perform at their best. Today, we talk through the phases of menopause, typical signs and symptoms, and Kirsty's whole-body approach to supporting women to stay active throughout their lives. Kirsty says she should have been a physical education teacher but put the wrong code on her university application form and ended up studying sports science instead. Well, we are very fortunate for that mistake. Professor Kirsty Elliott-Sale, welcome to JOSPT Insights.
1: Hello, it's great to be on. Thank
0: you so much for my invitation. I'm really excited to have this chat today. Kirsty, you've been on my list of podcast guests for a long, long time, and particularly because it feels like we're hearing so much more about what we as clinicians and sports scientists, as performance coaches can do to best support the female athletes who we work with to perform at their best and to stay injury free. We're hearing plenty more discussion about what women athletes need to successfully balance their career in sport with their desire to have a family. And many more researchers are calling out the, frankly, completely inadequate research base to support female athletes, women and girls who play sport and you're certainly at the forefront of a lot of that work. And all of this is fantastic. And you and I are both committed to making life better for women and girls in sport. But I reckon there's something missing from this conversation. We're not hearing enough about menopause and the needs of women as they age and want to continue to participate in sport and physical activity. So today, that's what we're tackling with your help. What are the main physiology changes that occur from perimenopause? menopause and then post-menopause? I approach things through an ovarian hormone lens
1: and I'm led from there into sort of other physiological changes. So that's where I'll start. So it's that sort of transition in terms of ovarian hormones from a menstrual cycle model into this sort of menopausal and post-menopausal sort of hormonal profile. It's about this pattern of predictable repeating hormonal fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone, which usually occur on around sort of a four-week, a one-month sort of time frame. And we have three main stages, which start off when estrogen and progesterone are low, Then we transition into a phase where oestrogen peaks sort of just before ovulation and progesterone is low. And then in that that sort of final phase of the menstrual cycle where we have high progesterone and a fairly high sort of high to medium concentration of oestrogen. And as I say, it repeats over time, usually around sort of every 28 days. So that's where most adult women sit in this sort of menstrual cycle model. Of course, we're not talking about hormonal contraceptive users or pregnant women or those with menstrual dysfunction, but that's the model in terms of ovarian hormones that we move away from as we transition through menopause. So menopause is really characterized by the permanent cessation of menses, so amenorrhea really, and that's as a result of a loss of ovarian follicular activity. So there are five main stages. They can be difficult to to characterize, mostly because hormonal measurements during this sort of transitional phase have very limited diagnostic value. So it's very hard to to pinpoint particular phases. We move from sort of minus stages into plus stages, and, and that will make sense in just a second. So the minus three stage That's characterised by still having a regular cycle, so still menstruating and having around this sort of 28-day cycle, but there are elevated levels of follicle-stimulating hormone in the follicular phase. So not particularly obvious without, you know, very regular blood sampling. Then stage minus two, so that's the early menopause transition, and that's when we start to see this sort of variability in cycle length. So if you did have a a sort of a fairly regular cycle around sort of 27, 28, 29 days, you might begin to see either shorter cycles or, or longer cycles. And then in stage minus one, which is the late transition stage, that's characterized by two or more stopped cycles. So that's when you start to encounter a sort of sporadic amenorrhea, where it's sort of a stop start. Then we go into the final two stages which are the plus stages so stage plus one is the first five years after the final menstrual period so at some point menstruation will stop entirely and will never return and that puts you into that plus one stage and then you have plus two stage which is is late menopause and and really then you sort of get into a, a sort of a, an older age i guess life stage as well so those two things correspond at the time of the final menstruation, so the the final period, oestrogen levels are around 50% of what they were when, you know, you were in sort of adulthood and had a menstrual cycle. And then they sort of drop to, you know, profound decline, just 10% of original values in the sort of three or four years after that final period. So you can see that clearly one of the biggest changes is that, you know, almost catastrophic decline in oestrogen. Corresponding and alongside those sort of changes in ovarian hormones, we do see other changes. So, I did mention that sort of decline in estrogen. So, no surprise, we do see a reduction in in bone health. And I think, you know, most people would would know and be aware of osteoporosis is associated with postmenopausal women in particular. There are some others I will say up front, they are more controversial. So the evidence here is can be contradictory. The menopause is also linked to changes in cardiovascular health and has also been linked as well with dementia. And then finally, I would say that the um, sort of you know muscle function is also think we'd be fairly confident in saying that there seems to be some changes in in muscle function and the ability to produce strength around this time too. It can be hard to discern what are menopausal changes and what are age-related changes, profound changes in oestrogen, changes in bone health, some reduction perhaps in the the muscular system and potentially influences around cardiovascular health and around maybe um, the prevalence of dementia.
0: I think that's a fantastic overview, Kirsty. Thank you. And a really good starting point. And I think folks listening to us today will also be familiar with things like hot flashes or hot flushes sometimes. And, and some people will describe emotion changes. Can you talk a little bit about some of these other things that we hear a lot about around menopause? I'm so glad that you asked that. I had purposely
1: left out what maybe we could describe as symptoms and side effects then, um, because it depends which lens that you're going to use so i would say that there's you know probably some biological pathways where we link a particular hormone concentration to a particular physiological outcome or or a change to a physiological system but then the other way to look at it is well if you have um, side effects associated with these changes in in hormones how did the side effects impact you know health and well-being and potentially athletic performance or the muscular system so maybe a I don't want to really say indirect pathway, but it's it's a slightly different pathway, isn't it? It's more that changes to the hormones give you a side effect and maybe then the side effect has the impact upon a particular outcome. So no, there's a, a very long list of, of, of symptoms and side effects, unfortunately, associated with, with the menopause. The most common one, the one that's discussed most openly is around hot flushes. But they're a long list, so let me throw a few at you. So night sweats, which I guess are, are similar and um, in a similar sort of sphere as hot flushes, vaginal dryness, changes to sex drive, heart palpitations. So again, if we're thinking about active women, women wanting to maintain activity or even start activity um, around the term of the menopause, then heart palpitations may may have quite an effect. Mood changes, joint pain, and again, linking that with activity. Weight gain. So again, maybe as we begin to talk a little bit more in a moment about what exercises menopausal and postmenopausal women might want to do, then we might see that, you know, a lot of those programs are designed at least in part to address weight gain. There are problems at memory and concentration. I'm menopausal. Brain fog, that's I think is the best name because it really does feel like brain fog. That's probably the biggest symptom for me and which I find quite difficult. So losing words losing my train of thought as i'm talking which is terrifying when you're doing a podcast <laughs> but it's it's that sort of sense sometimes that you're just not quite present in the moment and you can feel a little bit like a spectator in your own life so that brain fog can have quite a, an influence but as i say you know that may otherwise be described as memory problems concentration problems with these mood changes maybe feeling anxious or irritable and we have to think about how menopausal, or postmenopausal woman is feeling about exercise. Is exercise something new to them, or is it that they were active and actually these symptoms and side effects are preventing them from, you know, maintaining that activity?
0: So let's go there, Kirsty. I think that's a wonderful segue into the sort of implications of the physiology and the the mood changes and other signs and symptoms of menopause for musculoskeletal clinicians, they're prescribing therapeutic exercise potentially to help manage musculoskeletal pain or musculoskeletal conditions. They might also get involved in prescribing exercise for health and for physical activity. So what are the key implications that you see?
1: Firstly, is I call it that sort of breaking the moment of inertia. And I don't mean that sort of from a biomechanical perspective, but I mean getting people active and, and maintaining that activity probably at a time when the last thing they feel like doing is is physical activity. And so it's about getting people up and active and, and, you know, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's going for a walk, whether it's, you know, engaging with the personal trainer, whatever it is, I think the first hurdle is potentially, you know, getting them to do something. Then it's likely to be a balancing act, I think, between maybe weight loss or at least preserving sort of normal body weight so depending again on which stage the sort of menopausal woman presents for for physical activity or exercise so so I think weight management is going to be a key component of that sort of exercise or or physical activity program then it's going to be I think targeted or should be targeted around sort of preserving bone mineral density so looking at of course ideally weight-bearing activities wanting that osteogenic stimulus but also being careful again that if they're quite a way through the transition and potentially already have had adverse changes and effects on their bone health that you're sort of still prescribing exercises that are are safe while we're trying to preserve bone mineral density we probably want sort of strength a strength component within there trying to tie that together into something a little more concise i think we need a component around body weight Something around bone mineral density, and then something around strength. On top of that, because if that isn't enough for anybody to think about when they're when they're trying to design a program, I would like to see exercises which are maybe have a functional component to them. We want really to protect that habitual activity, you know, beyond the menopausal transition right into into old age.
0: Kirsty, we often think of load management as something that athletes do, and that you know club football clubs do or elite athletes do but load management is relevant for anybody at any stage Let's talk a little bit about how you might think about load and recovery for a woman who's going through menopause or is post-menopausal. These physiology changes, are they going to mean that we need to allow for a longer recovery time? Is it going to mean longer to respond to a strength stimulus? What kind of tips can you share with the musculoskeletal rehab clinicians listening today?
1: Oh, so I'm going to do that really annoying thing where I I start the answer with, we don't know, (laughs) but let me give a little bit of context and then I promise I I will share at least some some experiences with you in in, in direct answer to your question. We know that in this sort of female athlete space, there's a lot less research, particularly from a sport and exercise science perspective, which is is my background as a a physiologist. So in terms of load and and recovery in postmenopausal women, we do need to be mindful of slightly longer recovery times. Of course, we would take in just good principles, wouldn't we, of exercise prescription anyway, particularly if if they weren't used to exercising before and this is a new endeavor for them thinking about what is the purpose of their exercise so so clearly if you have somebody who's coming to you who just wants to exercise for weight management then of course we would prescribe something different than if we wanted somebody who is particularly interested in becoming a little bit stronger protecting you know their bones and and you know preventing falls And if you throw in some of those symptoms like poor sleep quality or just overall, you know, reduced amount of time that they're asleep, of course, that's going to add to, of course, the recovery anyway from from the particular exercise stimulus. You know, I mentioned before, I think there should be a resistance training component here, but also an aerobic one. So it's about, I think, maybe not trying to do both in the same session, using that sort of switch between a more aerobic session to a resistance training, just to sort of manage the different types, obviously, of, of stimuli, but also looking at a slightly longer recovery times within that.
0: Yeah. So it's about taking that longer term look at, we're not simply prescribing therapeutic exercise to get your shoulder better or to help your shoulder pain reduce so that you can go back to playing tennis. It's more about saying, okay, we're going to deal with a therapeutic exercise for this very defined particular musculoskeletal problem, but then what are also the longer term implications and how can we work together to support you best to stay fit and active and healthy for the rest of the lifespan?
1: Absolutely. I think in a a sort of a menopausal and post-menopausal space, it's almost impossible to do something that's very specific. Of course, as you say, you know, if there is an outstanding musculoskeletal issue, of course, making sure that we address that within our sort of overall package. But I think here, quality of life, well-being is is so important to this particular group. Older people in general still respond to the, you know, an exercise stimulus one particular i guess almost unique point with postmenopausal women is is that it is hard to be very sort of specific and targeted because it's such a a whole body approach that we need to take given this myriad of symptoms and side effects and given that you know there are a number of physiological changes with that long lens of looking at you know maintaining functional health and functional performance and that's the space that we're in right now
0: Kirsty, what are the biggest myths that you hear from people about physical activity, exercise, sport, ageing? What would you like to debunk today?
1: Oh, there are so many. I think one of the biggest ones, uh, particularly working with women, uh, menopausal women, is if they've not been active beforehand. So if they've not been active as a, as a child, as a teenager, as a, as a younger woman, they are quite worried. You know, they they feel like, well, surely I I can't take up Board, you know yeah there, there can be real reluctance there around well I wasn't a sporty child I don't know the rules of this game you know because we have some really again we, we, we haven't really maybe touched upon some of the sports that might be good for for or women thinking about some of those symptoms and side effects anxiety social isolation a lot of those things are associated with the menopause so some sports would be great because you would get a social interaction you know you're coming together there's that sort of camaraderie they are women that tend to sort of lean in towards More thinking that maybe, for example, hormone replacement therapy should you know that's the avenue that they should go down. And so again, I said about that buy-in, you know, breaking that moment of inertia, getting people active. I think that's really important. So you know, the myth there is that of course it doesn't matter if you weren't a sporty child and if you didn't play netball as a uh, you know a teenager. There's no reason not not to become active now, and you know take that even if you, you your intention is just to be more active the other sort of myth is that it's embarrassing to watch, you know, middle-aged women or sort of slightly older women exercise. And, you know, it's embarrassing. And, and I don't want to go to the gym and I don't want to wear lycra and I don't want to be stared at. And particularly if there has been some sort of or weight gain, it's on a real scale, isn't it? It can be from a walking program It could be a gym program, a gym based program, but it doesn't have to be. It could be a a team sport where you get that social interaction. It's about sort of saying to these women, it's not embarrassing. You don't have to wear tight lycra. It's the whole social setting, isn't it? And, you know, we have, of course, the topic here today is to talk about these endocrine changes and physiological changes. We can't get away from the psychological changes or the more sort of social changes and, and, and sort of the embarrassment that comes with that. So, yeah, it's about, I think, making sure we have a wide variety, not just of exercises that we prescribe, but also the setting for those exercise sizes. And so one thing that we maybe didn't mention amongst the um, symptoms and side effects was about sort of urinary incontinence as well so a, little, a bit of pelvic floor dysfunction. so again, that's something that we would as you know want to incorporate specifically into our programs but also try to find a way to navigate women around these potential issues. so you know what would we be asking them to wear and what sort of setting would we be in? That maybe we do just bring menopause women together for a women-only group activity. I guess if I could go one more myth, the other one is around. I think this one's quite pertinent because I have mentioned a few times. I think that resistance training is an important component of menopause and postmenopausal prescription. Some women are afraid of bulking up. You know, I'm using their words. And it's sort of, you know, explaining to them about, you know, of course, we know that balance between maybe high repetition, but low weight and and so on. So when they hear resistance training, they suddenly get this, as I say, picture in their mind about becoming, you know, sort of very muscled muscular and muscle bound, overly so. And they are a little bit worried about that. So again, it's about balancing that sort of aerobic component and and the benefits of, of aerobic type exercise alongside that resistance one. And, and you know, there's lots of ways to to package that. But I think the biggest buy-in, I think women In general, are super aware of osteoporosis and are afraid of falling, are afraid of sustaining an injury. So, for me, the buy-in there is: well, look, if we can prevent you from falling over, or at least reduce your chances of falling over, and that would be through more sort of strength training program and and things around flexibility and, and balance.
0: It sounds like speaking and communicating and sharing honest, open information and taking the time to do that is critical here. And what's also really striking are those myths that you shared that I wasn't a sporty person, so I can't do sport now around participating in the context and concerns around incontinence particularly, and then concerns around bulking up and I can't do strength training because I'll turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger. These are myths that are consistent across the lifespan. I hear these myths from women about exercising from girls and women about exercising and training across age groups. So it's really interesting that they are perpetuating and I'm I'm fascinated and I think it's a separate podcast on where that comes from and how what do we do to really break those myths down and those stereotypes down?
1: You're absolutely right. It really when I, when I hear sort of menopausal post-menopausal women say this and that you realize that potentially they're of a generation where sport in particular wasn't accessible to them as teenage girls It, it makes sort of perfect sense why they you know have these sort of barriers perceived barriers in their mind and so really it's we always talk about you know future studies and future work but in a way I think we have to look backwards when we're talking about sort of women and girls and, and physical activity and sport, I think we have to look back at children and sort of look at the pipeline, because if we get it right, we, we have to make it sort of that big generational change, don't we? Where, you know, participation in physical activity and sport is there from the start. And, you know, particularly around secondary schools, when we see so many girls leave sport, and, and you do wonder how fast forward 30, 40 years time, how do we persuade these women back into physical activity, exercise, and, and sport where they've had this sort of huge gap? Claire, I'm mindful that today my answers haven't been overly sort of detailed and, and prescriptive, as in lift this weight so many times per, per day and per week and, and so on. But that is purposeful. I'm not, I promise, I'm not trying to, to dodge any particular answer because, in truth, this is an area I think where we just have to be pragmatic if we can persuade menopausal and postmenopausal women to become active. That is, it's not even half the battle, it's three quarters of the battle. And by the time they get to into the, the offices or gyms or, or, or they're sort of interacting with hopefully the practitioners that are, are listening to this podcast, you all know what to do with them. You know, that's a given. We do have some great general principles of exercise prescription. That's not really the problem here. I think the focus of our conversations is around getting them active, showing them the benefits, the buy-in and keeping a long lens that, you know, if they buy in now to maybe get past some of these menopausal symptoms or to help future-proof their bones, if we get them now and they're a captive audience now. Let's keep them in our pipeline right through all dead.
0: Thanks for listening to today's chat with Professor Kirsty Elliott-Sale. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss our bonus chat next week, where Kirsty covers the challenges and the opportunities that come with working with Masters women athletes to protect their health and maximise their athletic performance.